Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, we have a great show lineup for today, as usual, and uh, I'm excited about it. We're going to talk about college savings. You know, this is a really important topic, and but there are some potholes with the new tax laws that just went into effect this year. And so we're going to point out, you know, what to look out for and be careful with uh, in saving for college for your kids. Yeah, the new tax law made some changes to that. So you want to, to listen in to that. And also, um, the question is, is uh, is buying in bulk good? I mean, do you really need that 10-pound jar of mayonnaise? I think you need a 40-pound jar. 40-pound. It probably would be cheaper, but Steve, I, th- I think that would be an issue later on with the doctors, right? Yeah. The medical doctors, yeah, that right. is. My mom used to buy some stuff in bulk that I thought, hey, man, it would like go, it'd be 10 years old by the time you <laughs> used the last time. So you got to be careful with that, but that's a really important topic because you can save some big bucks you can. buying in bulk. We're going to go into some numbers there. So that's a good one. I like that. But um, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 23 years experience of providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every week on Friday afternoon. Yeah, go check out our website, MoneyMD. That's where the podcasts are stored temporarily, and you can click another link and it takes you to... uh, the uh, historical ones. And we also have some tools on the website as well that you want to check out. We have a Facebook page that we post a uh, weekly video. And uh, I think it's your your time to do it this week. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. Rotating yeah. around a little bit. Next so. week's yours, though. That's right. That's right. So go check that out. We also tweet periodically also. So we're out uh, in the community quite a bit. Yeah, do check us on our website. And also you can link to us there and ask us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can link to us um, directly at info at moneymd.net, or you can just go on our website and uh, contact the money doctors directly. Uh, John, well, this leads us up to our financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the National Federation of Independent Businesses. And Steve, you, you probably couldn't look at the stock market this year and, and tell how good the economy is doing, right? Well, I mean, the stock market's kind of been zigging and zagging. Been it's been kind of up and down. It's up still, but it just doesn't feel like it's real positive from an economy standpoint. Yeah, the trade stuff. Yeah, the trade stuff's kicking rates. in there. But here's an interesting fact. Seven out of eight small businesses in the United States reported in May that they were having difficulties finding qualified candidates for job openings. So that's a good sign. That is a good sign. Yeah, with 3.8% unemployment. I mean, that's a remarkably low level of unemployment, and uh, I think it's like a 40-year low or something. So mm-hmm. that's that, that's a that's a really low level, and you're right. I mean, I think companies are having trouble finding qualified candidates as a result of that. So uh, it's a good sign for the economy. Though. It is. I mean, you know, people are employed. They have extra money. The taxes have, have helped. Um, I've heard some commentary on people have more money, so they are spending and uh it's not reflected in the stock market per se, but that's how the market works. It's looking out six plus months and trying to figure out, all right, what's it going to look like in the future? And uh, no one knows that answer at this point. But, um, you know, be diversified. Don't get too caught up in the ups and the downs of the market right now. It's kind of what they do. That's right. The market kind of it, it plays catch up a lot of times and it'll do it really quickly. You don't know when that's going to happen, but... Um, you know, I feel like I feel pretty optimistic that we may see that happen this year yet. So uh, 
Hang in there for the stock market. That's a great fact of the week, though. And that leads up to our first topic here, and that is college savings potholes and how to dodge them. Yeah, this is a bottom line personal article by Mark uh, Kantrowitz, I believe, uh, very recently. And, you know, if you're we had some big changes in tax laws this year. And if you're saving money to pay for a child or grandchild's education, the new federal tax law includes some tricky rules and opportunities that you may not know about. So proceed with caution, though, because these new rules can be kind of tough to interpret and they contain some potentially costly gotchas. Um, so we're going to jump right into these, John, because there's quite a few of them here. But yeah, for 529s, for they are now available for elementary tuition. Um, so money invested in a 529 college saving plan, that's the good news, is now can be spent on kindergarten through high school um, tuition. So if you're sending your kid to private school and you're paying that tuition out of your pocket, you can funnel that money through a 529 plan and, um, you know, it won't trigger any federal income taxes or penalties when you take it out. Um, previously, withdrawals from a 529 plan were penalty free only when they were used for college expenses. Of course, you know, if you're using money for that's saved for college to pay for pre-college education, it means that you have a shorter period for tax-free investments to grow and you have a smaller college fund. However, you might still get that immediate state tax deduction by funneling that money through a 529 plan. So it may still be worth considering. Um, but if you want to use a 529 plan for K-12 through education, beware of some of the traps that you can fall into as a result of that. Yeah, one of the traps, Steve, is um, there could be state and uh, taxes and penalties. I mean, most states probably are going to adjust their tax codes to allow tax-free withdrawals from from 529 plans for, you know, K through 12, um, just like the federal government has done. But that might not happen this year, and it's certainly no guarantee. So you probably want to contact your state's 529 plan administrators to confirm that there won't be any kind of state, uh, you know, income tax issues or tax issues before you take money out of the 529 plan, or at least understand that there could be if you needed to pull it out. Yeah, that's right. Another one here is that not all the 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 cost the for K through twelve will qualify for withdrawal from a five twenty nine plan. Um, you know, you can spend five twenty nine savings plans uh, on a wide range of college costs, including including tuition, room and board, textbooks, activity fees. But when it comes to K through twelve, only the tuition qualifies. Also, the K-12 tuition withdrawals are capped at $10,000 per year per student. So make sure you're within those limits and plan accordingly if you're going to use it for pre-college, you know, primary and secondary education. Um, another trap, though, is some of the kids could lose their K-12 through scholarships. If you're at a, a, a secondary school or a primary school, your kid is, and they're getting scholarship money for that, um, if you have significant assets in a 529 plan, your child uh, that receives, if they receive a need-based scholarship, that might be at risk and it could shrink or disappear. However, most private K-12 through schools have historically not factored 529 college savings money into their calculations when they decide which students and prospective students will qualify for needs-based Aid. So, um, but many of these schools, they might start 
doing it now. So now that it's available. Yeah. However, you know, the private K through 12 schools, they're probably unlikely to consider 529 uh, saving accounts owned by grandparents, even if those 529s name the, the grandchild as a beneficiary. So, you know, to this end, grandparents who want to help save for college, um, you know, they may want to open up the 529 accounts themselves rather than just contribute to the parent's account. And, uh, you know, also to maximize the long-term investment gains, this account could actually be opened before the grandchild is born. You can name a parent or, you know, another family member as a beneficiary, and then you can change that beneficiary to the child once he or she is born and you have that social security number. Yeah, that's a great point. And while you only have to have, you might just have one account and use it for multiple grandchild children, um, it's always easier to set up a separate account for each kid. And a 529 plan can only have one beneficiary at a time, so it can get complicated if there are two grandchildren in college at the same time. Plus, there's an annual contribution limit that's per beneficiary, so having separate 529 plans lets you save a lot more. Of course, the contribution limit's very large for each child, so that's not really something that most people bump up against and mm-hmm. not usually an issue. Um, all right, so another thing to consider, though, is the new kitty tax rule rates could affect college savings in UGMA accounts um, because Unified Gift, Uniform Gift to Minors Act accounts or UTMA accounts, Uniform Transfer to Minors Act accounts, there are alternatives to 529 plans. A lot of people put money in those. Um, they do not provide tax-free investment growth like 529 plans do, but there are also no penalties for using that money for something other than education. And investment pro- profits and gains from the accounts are considered income to the child, not the parent. So that's a distinction that can lead to very low tax rates Um in in part, thanks to the new tax law that just went into effect this year. Yeah, that's right, Steve. Prior to 2018, children's investment income above $2,100 was taxed at the parent's top marginal rate. Um, you know, and for a lot of families, that was between 15 and, and, and 28%, and it could have been as high as 40%. Um, but under the revised kitty tax rules that took effect in 2018, investment income above that $2,100 uh, level and, and a child's name is taxed at the rates that apply to trust and estates versus the parent's tax bracket. So these these rules apply to children younger than age 19 or younger than age 24 in the case of full-time students with limited earned income. So it could be a benefit. Yeah, it's really a pretty big change and, and it's very significant for folks that have money invested in their kid's name only um, in their name directly. Because yeah, that change can result in very low taxes for UGMA accounts and UTMA accounts, as long as a child doesn't have more than about $4,650 in unearned income each year from those accounts. Um, so after the $2,100 threshold is met, the next $2,550 in unearned income is now taxed at only a 10% rate. So that's pretty attractive. You know, the rates do climb really quickly after that, though, because it's it's taxed at a trust level tax brackets, which are very compressed and, and rise rapidly once you get above that twenty five hundred fifty dollars of income. <clears throat> so, you know, the bottom line is uh, you can have very low tax in a UGMA account up to forty six hundred and fifty dollars in annual unearned income. 
Um, and that holds some appeal. But despite that, there are some things worth noting before you put money in a UGMA account. And the first one is <laughs> 529 plans. They, they offer uh, the superior tax deal, um, usually because income that's in a UGMA account, it triggers, while it triggers minimal taxes, maybe only 10%, uh, a 529 plan is not taxed at all. It's tax-free. And so UGMA accounts, they come out ahead from a tax perspective only if the money is not spent on qualified educational expenses. But if it's on education expenses, you can't beat a 529 plan because, again, the money's totally tax-free. Yep. Can't beat free. Can't beat free. And it's hard to beat that. Yeah, UGMA accounts, though, the savings are are out of your control also, and that's another big deal. So while your money is put in a 529 plan, it's still legally yours because you can put it in your name with the child list just as a beneficiary. When you put money in a UGMA account, it belongs to the child, and when the child turns 21 in most states, they can spend it any way they like. Um, so that's another downfall of those type of accounts. And also, it can cost you financial aid. That's another thing to be concerned about with UGMA accounts. They're legally owned by the student, and more assets that the student owns, the less financial aid they're going to receive. That's kind of the bottom line. A 529 account has a much smaller effect on financial aid because it's legally owned by the parents or the grandparents. And usually only 5 to 6% of the parents' assets are counted toward education costs, while 20% of the child's assets are counted toward education costs each year and, and offsets the financial aid that you would receive. Yeah, and assets in a 529 account owned by the grandparent are not included at all in the college financial aid calculations. But when those grandparent-owned 529 plan assets are withdrawn and used to pay a student's educational expense, um, that does count as income uh, for the student, which certainly could reduce aid. But initially, there, it's not included. So to avoid this, do not don't tap the um, the grandparents five twenty nine until after January first of the student's sophomore year, if possible. So financial aid decisions they're usually based on the family's finances during the prior um, year, you know, their financial year. So if you can wait a little bit of time on that, then uh, it can help you with the financial aid. Exactly, <clears throat> that's right, and then. One other type of account we haven't really touched on yet is the Coverdale Education Savings Account. Um, you know, and so the question is, when is that better than a 529 plan? It used to be that a Coverdale Education Savings Account was was better if you were going to use the money for K through 12 costs because you couldn't use 529 plan money for uh, you know secondary and primary education costs. But, John, you know, that's changed now with the new tax law. 529 plan has the same advantage as a uh, education savings account. So there's really not a whole lot of advantages to a, a Coverdell education savings account now. In fact, it has some disadvantages. First of all, they have very low contribution limits. Um, you can't put over $2,000 per beneficiary per year into a, a Coverdell education savings account. So that's a very low limit while a 529 plan has a huge limit all the way up to, to 235000 or uh, even 300000 per student, depending on how you um, calculate it. And then the Coverdell education accounts also have income limits. If you're, you're not allowed to make a full contribution if your modified adjusted income is above $95,000 single or $190,000 joint. 
Um, and so that's a problem, you know, and there's no caps with 529 plans for income limit. And then also Coverdell education savings accounts have age limits. The contributions are not allowed after the beneficiary turns age 18 and the money generally has to be withdrawn within 30 days of their 30th birthday. So none of those restrictions apply to a 529 plan. So clearly a 529 plan has a distinct advantage over education savings accounts now. And so going forward, I wouldn't recommend folks use uh, a Coverdell education savings account. Yeah, I guess the only question would be is, can you do better in an ESA versus a 529 plan? Because the 529s are sponsored, right, by the states. Right. Um, and they have reasonable options. But, um, you know, if you have better options in an ESA, you could do both of them, too, right? It's true. Nothing nothing wrong with that. And yeah, you, that's you, true. You can actually take money from an ESA and eventually put it into a 529 also, so there's different strategies on it, but yeah, those are some those are some potholes you want to make sure you miss. Definitely, so something to consider when you're saving for college for your kids. All right, and that leads us up here to our prescription of the, well, our question of the week. Yeah, the question has to do with Bitcoin and should I buy Bitcoin? And uh, it's an easy <laughs> answer: no, no, we don't. don't do we don't like Bitcoin. Yeah, very very volatile. I mean, I was just looking at the return this year, and it's down like fifty percent. And ouch, that's a little bit of volatility. A little bit of volatility, no doubt. I mean, you know, there was an article uh, last week about a uh, cyber heist of a little known um, exchange in uh, South. Korea that uh, just uh, stole some money. And back in January in Japan's coin check, hackers stole $530 million worth of the virtual currency from its users. Is that all? Half a billion dollars? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, it's just not regulated. It's like the wild, wild west. So, no, we don't we don't recommend this um, at all. I mean, we don't I don't own any of it. I know you don't either. And, um, you know, I mean, you're almost better to go out to Vegas and go to a slot machine. For Seems sure. Like, I mean, yeah, for sure. And so here's the thing to me with virtual currencies. You know, I know people look at Bitcoin and they say, well, it's limited. You know, they can't mine very much more of it now. So the value is going to hold. And and they're using this as, you know, and it does have some uses um, for, you know, transactions, I guess, that are kind of behind the scenes that you don't want the government to see. And so it's kind of the wave of the future. I know people look at it that way. The problem is there's no limit on the number of virtual currencies that can be issued. So while Bitcoin is kind of limited, now there's Ethereum and there's uh, there's 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 like over fifteen hundred virtual currencies that are out there. There's new ones coming out every single day. So there's unlimited supply of virtual currencies that are becoming more and more popular, and there's there's a limited demand. So the that means the value of something, if you have unlimited supply and unlimited demand, the, the value goes to zero. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem with virtual currencies, in my, my opinion. So, uh, yeah, that's a good question. But no, we don't think you should buy Bitcoin um, to make a short answer long. <laughs> All right. And that leads us up here to our next topic. And that is... Um, uh, buying in bulk. Does it really save you money? Is yeah. something worth doing? Yeah, this is uh, coming from uh, Dave Ramsey. Good good uh, conversation and topic here. And certainly if you swing by your neighborhood warehouse store and you eat some of the samples, um, you know, you're probably going to load up that shopping cart and, you know, you can be in serious trouble then. So don't do that. Um, those those mm-hmm. places can be dangerous if you're not going in there focused. 
Um, but, you know, buying in bulk, it, it can seem intimidating, um, especially if you're trying to stick to your budget. But you need a game plan as you walk through that door. And, and so we're going to kind of walk you through a couple of items um, and how to buy some of these. So, you know, while it might be tempting to grab that 80-ounce jar of mustard, um, you may ask yourself, am I really going to eat that in a reasonable amount of time? And you got to store it. You got to store it, right. And you, you got to figure out where to put that in your refrigerator. And so you just don't want to buy bulk just to end up with, with bulk in the trash. So you got to stick to you know buying things that you know your family is going to need and eat as well. And there are some deals out there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the uh, the key here is is knowing how to buy in bulk. And um, you have to be able to compare the prices. That's the name of the shopping game. But, you know, that's even more true when it comes to buying in bulk. You know, cost per unit is extremely important when it comes to buying in bulk. You got to do math here? You got to do some math. Uh-oh. But, you know, but it's pretty simple math, John. I mean, it's the stuff that I think even a Carolina graduate could do. <laughs> ouch. Oh, ouch. Ouch. Yeah. That hurt. Yeah, don't worry. There's only a tiny bit of math here. All you need to do is figure out how much you're paying per item. So you calculate it like this. You know, you take the total item price. You divide it by the unit weight or the number of servings or the number of units, and that's the price per unit. So it's really that simple. So if you have, you know, you're paying $1.79 for a dozen eggs, that's 15 cents per egg when you do the math and divide $1.79 by 12. Um, So it's pretty quick and painless to figure out, you know, on your phone. So just pull out your phone and do the math if they don't have it broken down in a per unit price. Yeah, that's right. And some places do. I, I, uh, I'm not sure about the um, wholesale world, but I know in the grocery store, they definitely definitely break it down. Right. And there, there are a couple of um, you know big names out there. Costco and Sam's are the, really the two that are very, very large. Both stores are, are pretty similar when it comes down to what you're looking for. If you want to buy a 10-pound bag of cubed cheese, um, that's where you're going to get it. Um, you can also go to BJ's Wholesale Club, and um, there's even some online outlets like Boxed and Amazon are getting into the business as well. Oh, so, yeah. so the question is, is what should you buy in bulk? And in general, there's some items that you can count on to be a better bargain. There are things like dental care items, uh, paper products, batteries, gum, cereal. Yeah. They're, they're usually cheaper when you buy them in bulk. Fungicide. But, but Really? Yeah, I buy fungicide in bulk for my yard and my they golf. They sell green. that in. Well, I have a golf green. It's a stupid hobby, I admit. But yes, you got to buy. You got to put fungicide agree. on it. So yeah, you buy it per gallon, and uh, it's a lot cheaper that way. They sell that at Costco or? Uh, no, you got to buy it online. Oh well, we're not talking about that. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's true. You can buy this stuff online as well. So, but you do have to resist the temptation to stock up on things. Um, just to stock up. So, you know, you got to look at the, the trips that you're going to and, um, you know, you got to look out for the overspending on your budget. Um, you got to make sure you get your money's worth. So what should you not buy in bulk? Um, not everything should be uh, bought in bulk. And when you start looking really, uh, things that are perishable um, are going to be questionable. The odds are ever in your favor that it's going to spoil before you eat it. I mean, 20 avocados for four bucks is a steal, but if they if if you throw fifteen of them out, what's the point? Yeah, right? I'm thinking you ought to stay away from buying milk in bulk. I think so. <laughs> I can barely use a gallon in a week, yeah. and you know we we don't use it in a week, maybe two or three weeks. But uh, so it almost goes sour just right on the edge before we use the whole gallon. Yeah, and as appealing as it is to buy things like condiments and spices in bulk. 
um, they may actually outlive their shelf life and potency. So no one likes lackluster garlic powder. I mean, right? You got to got to make sure. sure you have that pop it's associated have, with it. Yeah, so right there. How about buying meat? Meat? Yeah, well, you know, believe it or not, you can buy meat in bulk, and and this is something I learned from this article because I I was thinking meat was probably not a great thing. Perishable, to buy. right? Very perishable. But uh, yeah, if you're serious about buying meat in bulk, they say, and we're talking live off the rest of the year type serious. <laughs> Then, you know, there are a couple options you can look into, um, but I don't think I'd buy fish this way. Um, but, yeah, you can buy meat at many of the warehouse stores through online farm-to-table suppliers like Zaycon Fresh. That's Z-A-Y-C-O-N Fresh. Hmm. Or straight from the local farmer in your area. You can use a website like Eat Wild. Hmm. I guess it's eatwild.com. It doesn't say here. Yeah. But, uh yeah, you can find a farm near you, and the farmer will sell directly to you, according to this article. That's pretty interesting. I've, I've never heard of that. Um, but, you know, let's cut to the chase, though. I mean, if your grocery budget's tight, if you can drop $75 on a big pack of meat in one month, you know, you're not. that's not going to be the right thing for you, right, if you got a tight budget. So you have to have some room, some flexibility, so you can lay down some extra cash in one month for your meat. Um, but you know, if you can live off, you can eat off that 40 pounds of chicken for the next six months. And if you have a deep freezer already or a vacuum sealer or a lot of Ziploc bags on hand, then $75 might be worth the investment. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people buy, you know, ground, ground beef that Mm -hmm. way. And they might buy a whole, um, you know, what is it? A tip roast or something. Sure. And just grind, have have it ground up into meat. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a cool thing to do. Yeah, so the question is, is, is you know, what kind of items can you buy and how much can you really save? So they went out and did, tested 15 items. I'll just read some of them off here. Uh, Quaker Old Fashioned Oats. They went to Kroger and uh, Costco. So at Kroger, it was about a buck seventy three per pound. And then at bulk, at Costco, it was $0.80. Cents. That's so a big savings. It is a big savings, <clears throat> 50% off. Um, I like that. Sabra Classic Hummus was $0.40. Cents per ounce at Kroger and 19 cents per ounce bulk. Wow. So another 50%. Another big one. Cliff bars, a buck 25 a bar versus 83 cents. Um, Del Monte peaches, nine cents per ounce versus six. So, you know, these are, it doesn't sound like a lot, but, but wait a minute. Trash bags are on the list here. Yeah. They actually paid more in bulk than they did. I think that's the only item I saw in there that was more expensive. Yeah, so I guess the point with that would be be careful. Don't just assume just because you're buying four times as much, you're getting a cheaper price. Yeah, You've got to right. do the math. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So in general, most items um, are, are lower, not every single one of them. You want to make sure you're you're getting something that you need and that you'll use, I would say, in a reasonable amount of time. I don't know what that is, six months, a year. You certainly don't yeah. want to have it five years later, per se. No, for sure. And, I mean, be careful with things like oats and things like that. I mean, if that sits in your cabinet for you know, a long period of time, then you're really not going to, uh, yeah, it's not going to be fresh and it may, it may attract bugs. That's right. I mean, I don't know if you've had bugs in your cabinet, but Mm. we have, and man, they love oats and grits and that kind of stuff. So you don't want that stuff to be sitting in there for years, you know, once it's already opened. Um, So there are five questions here, though, you need to ask yourself before you buy in bulk. You know, one of them is, will this go bad before I eat all of it? I mean, that's an obvious question. Do I have enough freezer and pantry space to store it reasonably well? You know, what's the price per unit? As we just pointed out, could actually be more. So you got to be smart about it. Do the math. 
do I really need this much of an item? I mean, that's that's a that's a question a lot of people that buy in bulk don't ask themselves. So yeah. You need to ask that question. Do you really need it? Are you going to use it? And have I budgeted for it? Because you're going to have some inventory you're storing for a while, and you don't want to be storing it for five years. I mean, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's a good question. You know, the other thing you have to take into account is, you know, there's an annual fee. I think at uh, Sam's it may be 100 bucks, and, and you do get some of it back, um, but that you have to take that into account as well. Sure. The drive time also could be a, a you know consideration if you're an hour away. Um, so there's a lot of different factors in there. Um, I would say the the for me looking at this is making sure that you stick to your budget. You don't want to go way over your budget in a month. That's going to cause you issues. Maybe if you're um, you're going to miss a utility bill or a house payment or so forth, it's not worth it. So um, you definitely want to go through and, and evaluate it and see if it makes sense for you. Absolutely, but it's a great topic though, and it's some way to save money if you're if you're careful mm. about how you do it and do it reasonably. So good topic. That leads up to our final thing here, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, this has to do with um, it's pretty cool saving uh, when you when you first get married, live on one income, and it doesn't have to be when you first get married. You can do this anytime, but live on one income, budget one income, yep. and use the rest to get ahead. And that get ahead can be maybe it's paying off debt, maybe it's um, saving your emergency fund, maybe it's buying a house. See, and I think that's the only way to do it. Honestly, I we did that our first five years of marriage. You know, put all that money toward a house, and I just think it, then it totally frees you up. So if you want want the uh, you know one of the spouses to stay home with the kids, you can do that because you're only used to one income. Um, so, yeah, I think you need to you need to save one income. If you have two incomes, you need to save one and live off the other. Yeah, it's a great strategy. It really is um, great prescription of the week. All right, and that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Do tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.